One, two, ten. Welcome to the Claim the Throne Blodgecast, coming on you with insights into what it's really like to be in a do-it-yourself metal band in 2014. Who is it? Welcome to the second podcast of 2014. Uh, I'm Ash. I'm Kiba, and um, this will be the first interview of the year, and um, only our second interview ever. Um, so, pretty keen on pumping out a few of these bad boys throughout the year. Hope you enjoy them. Um, we've certainly had good fun chatting to people so far, learning heaps ourselves. And um, yeah, good chance to get some extra tips and knowledge from industry pros out there to the masses. This is actually a pre-recording. We're on tour right now having heaps of fun, or so I hope. So if our scheduling goes all to plan, then this podgy will be out whilst we're away and we won't even know that it's been released. If it doesn't go to plan, then this will probably come out in like February. It'll come out. <laughs> so this year is going to be filled with interviews, hopefully every second week as we previously explained last week on the podcast we haven't actually recorded yet so here's <laughs> hoping and basically what we did was get a short list of people that we really wanted to interview and also some that would be easy to get started with um so this first interview is actually our friend sam allen he does sound for claim the throne uh on our bigger shows when we want some ace sound and he also runs a recording studio he came from humble beginnings as a hobbyist with his own band and has turned that into a business um, through live sound and also running Electric City Studios, which is his current venture. Um, Cabra and I were able to interview him quite easily because he lived around the corner from my house. And it was um, it was a really good chat and I'm looking forward to listening to it again. Um, yeah, Sam, it really is a pretty knowledgeable dude um, who's, yeah, like, like you said, started from humble beginnings and really worked his way up. Um, you know, obviously extremely motivated person and um, constantly learning more things. Um, so, yeah, he talks a bit about what it's like from, you know, a business perspective. So people that might be wanting to get into um, into the sound business, live and studio. But he also um, talks about it from band perspective. So he's going to yeah be giving a lot of tips, a lot of gold nuggets out to all you musicians out there who might, um, might be looking to record sometime soon or looking to get a sound guy at your shows. Um, yeah, it, it's really cool to be able to hear it from uh, from someone who's is directly involved in that and, and he can you know let you know exactly what's going through the sound guy's head. So without further cume, let's kick it over to Kiba and Ish with the Sam Allen interview. There's a Kaba here and an Ash as well and we're here today with our first interview of 2014, a bloke called Sam Allen from Electric City Studios. Also from quite a few Perth bands and all around sick dick. How are you doing today, Sam? Quite well. That's good. You look really good as well. Just to give the um, viewers a bit of an idea, you've got a stunning beard, I'd say probably about six inches long, beautiful glowing eyes and a brand new Earthrot shirt, which I'm probably going to steal at the end of this interview. That was not a question, by the way. Giving the, the listeners a bit of an overview um, of who we're talking to today, but if you don't mind, Sam, can you just um, let us know a bit about your background, how you got where you are today, what you do and yeah, what you're up to in the music industry? Certainly. I suppose I got my start recording Ashley, in fact. Well, technically, I suppose, before recording Ashley, 
um, I started recording my own band, a really terrible old band called Binding the Flesh. I suppose I wanted to record it myself because I didn't want to pay money to record things. So recording software and interfaces and such had just sort of come down a lot in price. It was a lot more accessible. So I thought, why not? I'll get into it. Give it a crack. So I first met you from earlier bands than that that you were in. Did you used to do your demos and stuff like that for those bands as well? I suppose so. You could call it demos. It was uh, terrible. That's Things what a like, demo uh, is, right? But real terrible, like taking a, an over-ear headphone, for instance, and slapping that against a guitar cab and using that as a microphone because it didn't oh, actually... Oh, so you actually mic'd up cabs. Yeah, but, you know, like with a Sound Blaster 16 on an old Pentium you are with, talking uh, with to a headphone. 15-year-old mm. Ash right here. <laughs> I used to put my Sony headphones on my drum kit after school in year 11 and get a pretty good overall kit sound on Goldwave. Mm, classic on software. On the old Sound Blaster. Good days. So you used to do demos for your bands and then did you, what, did you catch the bug or? Yeah, pretty much. Um, I'd been using Fruity Loops for a while, making industrial music, that kind of thing, because I'm a bit into that whole electronic cross with metal sort of stuff. So, you know, it was kind of part and parcel with that, wanting to be able to record good guitar sounds. And obviously you get to a point where if you're technically minded, this sort of stuff becomes an obsession and takes over your life. And I started buying microphones and interfaces and pretty much going crazy, I guess. Wicked. And so that's when you started sort of tracking for other bands as well, once you started building up a bit of a bit of a batch of gear of your own? Yeah, so I won a competition from Billy Hyde's, strangely enough. They gave me $5,000. So I bought a lovely ESP Eclipse, bought some <laughs> crappy Moto interface, and um, yeah, just started demoing other bands for free, you know, just trying to do as much as I could. Just out of your bedroom and that sort of yeah, thing? Yeah, out of my bedroom at home. Got a nice pair of monitors and... Uh, yeah, just sort of started with programmed drums and always mic'd up guitars. was never a big fan of the whole guitar amp sim type deal. Big tube man. And uh, kind of snowboarded from there until I did my first big project, which was Discord. Uh, and, and we've one, got uh, one member from Discord large. here today. So um, with having bands like coming to your house, specifically like, like your bedroom or your lounge room to do recording, would you recommend that other people do that? Do you learn a lot or does it get really annoying having people you know, invading your space and, and that sort of thing. And are there any crazy stories of freaks coming to your house? Yes, to all of the above. Sweet. Three-part um, question. Yeah, okay. What was the first part? First part, would you recommend aspiring producers start out that way? Definitely, yeah. Definitely, for a few reasons, it's good to record mates bands for a start, obviously yep. because they're a bit more lenient with, you know. Forgiving. Forgiving, yeah, forgiving and not expecting, you know, the world. Totally. <sighs> Bless you. That was a good one. Keep that. Do that clip? No. No, no. excellent. Good, good burping microphone technique. <laughs> um, yeah, so I do recommend it, obviously, when you're starting out. Um, there's a lot of great tools available these days, especially at things like Superior Drummer and such. You can get, you know, a pretty reasonably good drum kit sound. Drums being the hardest thing to record, that takes away a lot of the learning curve you can sort of focus on, you know, guitars and vocals and bass and all that sort of stuff and not having to worry about editing drums and so on and so forth. But, yeah, it does get really annoying having people at your house and uh, working from home and, I don't know, I guess it depends whether or not you're trying to do it for a living or if it's just sort of a, you know, side hobby type deal. When we started doing the tracking for the Discord album... The pre-prod? The pre-prod was pretty good and... Originally, I started playing on electric kit, but I remember the, the kick pad wasn't really working for me. 
No, and it was a real pain, wasn't it? Yeah, so and we had to we quantize just, it all, and it was. Just I like think a we just ended point. up. Um, I just programmed it, didn't yeah, I? Yeah, did. Cubase back then, but um, did a great job too. When, when we actually, I think the reason why we ended up doing it was that you know it sounded pretty sweet straight off the bat. Like mm. those guys, because I only just joined the band, they'd paid so much money in the past, ten grand or something like that, to get an album that sounded great, but you know they were rushed. Blah blah blah. They didn't quite have the time to do everything. And so when you gave us a good quality demo for free, we're like, well, what would you want to take it to the next level? So Mm. it was almost like the band approached you. You were obviously, were you actually confident that you could do it? Or did you just think it's now or never? I was reasonably confident, but also shitting my pants at the same time. Yeah, because when you mentioned the drums thing with um, Superior or whatever it be, like program drums, was that your first drum recording experience? It was. It was. Indeed. That's awesome. (laughs) So basically with you guys, it was uh, the quote that I gave you in the end was what I required to purchase an Audix DP5 drum mic kit, a couple of Rode NT55s, and a legitimate copy of Cubase. So I kind of looked at my early jobs as sort of like I'll charge what is sort of a fair and reasonable amount and allows me to purchase the gear that I need to actually do the job. Yeah. So it was a good way of, you know, a good deal for people that wanted a recording and it was also a good deal for me because it helped me build up all the equipment that I wanted. Which is pretty much what Claim the Throne did for the last album. We exactly the same as you, just like we'd been doing demos for however many years and then, you know, didn't have such a great tracking session and then thought, you know, well, you've been recorded so many times. Do you reckon you know where the mics go? I'm like, oh, well, vaguely. <laughs> Let's give it a whirl. And so we, we just kind of got enough stuff together just to do it, to send it off to mix. Well, I think the trickiest thing about drums is phase. And it's something that a lot of people struggle with. So not having to worry about that using program drums as a sort of starting point is good. And then you can worry about phase on things like guitar cabs. If you want to use two mics on a guitar cab, it's a lot easier to get those two things in phase than, you know, however many drum mics you end up with on a drum kit, depending on how you do it. Um, But yeah, regarding recording from home, yeah, I've got crazy stories, but I probably wouldn't want to go into them because I don't really like, you know, saying mean things about people, clients or friends or otherwise. But once sitting there, I remember, I think it got up to something like 174 takes of this solo. You know, he didn't write any of his solos before he came in. He was just going to wing it. But I remember having this bizarre idea at the time where I like he, he just kept writing all this crap. And I was like, oh, what can I do to make this lunatic, you know, come out with something good? And I seem to recall put Irreversible on was a was the idea that came up. So we put Irreversible on and tried to get him to write a solo over that infamous scene in the tunnel in the underpass thing. And it was... Uh, the movie. The movie, yes. Yeah. So <laughs> he'd never seen Irreversible and... Um, Neither have I. Yeah, you don't want to watch it. It's bad. Um, yeah, basically he didn't play anything because he was too busy watching the movie. And after three hours of having to watch that movie, he then sat there and tried to play a solo 174 times until I had to kick him out of my house. Oh, man. Terrible. On that note of um, of bands winging it in the studio, does that, I guess, as a producer, does that concern you? Do you reckon bands need to practice more before they come in? And yes, I'm a fan of um, two-part questions. So mm. as a producer, do you feel like you are entitled to have a bit of input into the songwriting process as to, you know, if you have ideas to how they could play something better, would you feel comfortable, you know, saying that or making suggestions? Well, it depends whether it's been clearly delineated as to whether or not I'm the producer or simply just engineering it. So, yeah, in the instances where people have asked me to produce it for them, then certainly that's what they're asking for is your input. 
you know, I don't tend to try and make any sort of sweeping changes to anything. I just offer simple suggestions where I think things could be better or quicker or easier or... For sure. Preparedness is a big, big problem, big problem in the studio. And um, I guess nothing lines my pockets quicker than people that are unprepared because... You know, you're paying a day rate to be in my studio. The longer it takes, obviously, the more money is in it for me. But it's frustrating. You know, I don't, I don't want to sit there hearing a hundred different solos that, you know, whatever. Write your solos before you come in, really. Yeah, and I mean, you'd prefer, even though you maybe make a bit of an extra dime out of people sucking. Mm. The whole aim of the game really is for people to be prepared and then come in and yeah. you do your best work when they're doing their best work. Exactly. So what, so on that note, what advice do you have for bands coming in? What do you like to see from them? Guitar pro tabs. Whoa. How come? So you can learn the song. That's good for me as well. The structure Um, and everything. Especially if there's markers in the guitar pro tab file. Whoa, Um, mama, you're prepared. Tempo track, obviously. That's the best tip I've ever heard. So I can't imagine any tips being better than that, actually. I've got a few. I've got a few, but yeah. Good stuff because especially if you've got markers and tempo tracks, then obviously I can import MIDI from that into a Pro Tools session. Got your click track, got the markers as to where the verse is, where the chorus is, so on and so forth. And this is also ways for you know young bands on a budget to save money coming into the studio. If they're Indeed. on the clock, that sort of thing is going to save them you know, half a day's worth of work. Exactly. And you know if someone's forgotten a part, it's right there. It's tabbed out. Someone doesn't know the part at all, which does happen far more frequently than it should. Again, it's right there. But generally, if a band comes in and they've got guitar pro tabs for everything, they're pretty damn well prepared. So, you know. Yeah, that's fucking awesome. Oh, you do that, but and that's a good way for everyone in the band to know what's going on. Mm. And essentially, that's like the new way of doing pre-production. Definitely. If everyone's on the same page with the guitar pro, then... Exactly. I mean, let's be honest, budgets just aren't there to actually go into a studio and do actual pre-production like who's got the money these days to actually go and pretty much record an album twice speaking of which i don't know if you're aware um you know the band protest the hero i do you know how they did a kickstarter and made 200 grand in mm-hmm. a couple of weeks or something or less than that even um i was listening to a podcast and someone played it and i thought to myself besides that it was a wonderful world why do you need 200 grand to get a sound like that like, if you mm-hmm. know, what you, like, they wanted to go into Canada's biggest studio to well, do their stuff. Like, that's why. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. But I mean, like, I mean, you have a, an ace facility. Mm-hmm. You've had in the history of that place, some huge names go through there from, from the Perth scene and, you know, domestic national scene. Mm-hmm. I mean, if people are pretty prepared, you can just go into a great studio, smash it out in a short amount of time. We, mm. I mean, we've done it in the past at Begurk, just like being really prepared and just cruising in, yep. getting it done and getting out. The only reason it should cost you 200 grand is if you're, well, it costs you a lot more if you're Fleetwood Mac, but if you were Fleetwood Mac going into a studio writing in there or not being prepared, why can't you just book two weeks or something for an album? Would mm-hmm. be, that That seems like a lengthy, crazy budget, but... If, if you're prepared enough, that's well and truly more than enough time. If a band's going to go in and let's say record eight songs with you mm-hmm. and you're going to mix it. Mm-hmm. Um, do you guys do mastering? Mm-hmm. Okay. So if you were going to do a package for a band or something like that and they were prepared, mm-hmm. eight songs, you know, three and a half minute songs, mm-hmm. regular four or five piece band, would you say two weeks is enough to track, mix and master if, if everyone's mm-hmm. sort of on the right level? Definitely. Yeah. There you go. And that's not going to be an absorbent cost, is it? No. So then it kind of bridges the gap like on this podcast, we push and, you know, we're all, including Sam, from the DIY and even in your new studio, you've got some DIY Mm -hmm. preamps and stuff like that. 
Yep. You're Built. still from that standpoint. You know, people discount going to actual professional environments because they think it's going to be cheaper. But really, if you're prepared... It doesn't have to cost you a lot. If you're well prepared and you come in and play your stuff and you play it well, then it's a pretty quick process. But the reason it normally costs people a lot of money is because they're not prepared enough. I just don't do a good job. You know, I do a lot of live sound and such as well. And I can only polish a turd so much. So if a band, <laughs> you know, sucks, then they suck. You can't do anything about it. But if you've practiced a lot and you're prepared, then it's very quick and easy to get good drum sounds. It's easy to get good guitar sounds. You don't have to do a lot of editing. Pretty much comp takes together and you've got, you know, a fairly polished product before you even have to pay for any mixing or mastering. If you get all the sounds right at the source and it was played well, you're more than halfway there. Sweet. Easy peasy. Mm. You did mention um, you're tapping into the, the live sound a bit these days as well. Um, Indeed. I believe you started doing that with Sensory Measure, if I'm not mistaken, and, and hitting them up in the studio as well. Um, you seem to have really sort of taken your yourself to the next level since you've been working with them. Um, do you feel like you've sort of learnt a lot over that process and how's the transition over to the live scene? Yeah, definitely. Well, I... Um I started working with Sensory because their original drummer, Carl, played for Left Ablaze, and I played for Left Ablaze briefly, so he was hitting me up about the EP, um, I guess just before he left to go work on the mines. Um, I became good mates with Sean, and even after Carl had left the band and they got a replacement drummer, it was all going to be done with program drums anyway, so ended up doing the EP for them. And the reason I actually got into live sound was because Sean kept nagging me to mix them live because he'd had a lot of bad experiences with local sound guys. So to be honest, I'd never really been interested in doing live sound, yep. um, but I thought, fuck it, I'll give it a shot. So hit up my old mate Adam, who runs Electric City with me, um, and he started showing me how to use a digital desk down at the Newport, and I started mixing terrible cover bands. Uh, for a few months, that's where I got started in live sound. Um, but yeah, mixing mixing metal bands has definitely pushed it to the next level for me. It's uh, probably the hardest genre of sound to mix, just purely because of the amount of frequencies fighting for space in a mix. So you know, all the guitars are super distorted, basses are generally distorted, thundering double kicks all the time. Like literally everything is fighting for a space in the mix. So you really have to become quick and efficient at picking out frequencies and figuring out what's feeding back when. And you don't have a lot of time to dial in a good mix. So it makes you a lot better in the studio as well. And then working in the studio makes you a lot better doing live. So definitely, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You'll know it. Harmonious relationship. Like the spider and venom thing. What's that? What's that called? Comics. Comics, but symbiotic that's yeah, it yeah there you go Boom. there you go lovely words so they feed into each other but at the same yep. time would you suggest putting yourself out there definitely I mean, did you source a lot of help from other people or internet or even magazines like yeah, how yeah, did yeah. You, yeah well live sound Adam Round for sure definitely been my Sherpa up the mountain of live sound uh, really helpful guy and if you're not a shit cunt always happy to help people out doesn't have any secrets always happy to go into a super huge amount of detail and give anyone a hand recording wise the andy sneak forum on ultimate metal fantastic resource a lot of big name producers on there a lot of great tips a lot of great techniques so really good place for anyone looking to start out to get a lot of good advice i post on there frequently myself as well great resource uh gear sluts not so much have you done any actual music courses like um tafe or sao uni or anything like that i did tafe uh cert three oh text message uh cert three Come music in. Performance, that was it. I looked into SAE and at the time I was looking at it, it was uh, 
like 10 grand a semester or something and it wasn't hex supported uh and i went to the open night and i asked every single person there what they did for a job audio wise other than teaching sae and they told like was it one guy told me he recorded greeting messages for greetings on hold or something that was literally the only audio related job one of them had and i went right fuck this shit i'm just gonna spend 10 grand on audio equipment and just teach myself how to use it i've actually got a story on the opposite end of the spectrum because when i finished high school and still to this day have no idea what i want to do with my life but all i did know is that i love music and i end up did getting sucked into going to sae for a little while did the cert three as well um but yeah obviously never got a, a job out of it but i think that's more you know being young at the time, I just, you know, was hoping that it would take me somewhere without really having the motivation to make it for myself. And I think um, that's a problem that a lot of people that do those sorts of courses have, that they don't have a goal in mind and they don't, mm. they aren't persistent enough and they don't realize that they have to make it work for themselves in order to get something. So do you find that um, you have been more motivated and persistent and, and, you know, proactive in actually making it for yourself as opposed to a lot of other people out there? Great question. I think, yes. Um, don't get me wrong, I know a few great people that have come out of SAE, like Jay Brandener, does sound for the Ocean Collective, fucking great mixer. Uh, Casey down at Beat Night Club, fantastic. Um, but yeah, SAE is definitely like very hands-off, so you get out what you put in. I think a lot of people go in expecting that they're going to get something out of it without having to do a lot, just because, I don't know, they think it's a... Oh, fuck knows what they think. But they unless... think that if you're paying that much money, they're just going to inject your brain yeah. with some magic potion that's going to give you a, a job yeah. and skills. Yeah, exactly. So I guess if you don't have the passion for it, you don't have the commitment to it, you know, let's be quite frank, it's a fucking brutal job. It's extremely hard to make ends meet. And um, if you're not geared for it, you're just not going to, you're not going to get anywhere. So you really got to want it to actually do it. Yeah, it's hard work. You're obviously making a living off it at mm -hmm. the moment. I am, yeah. And the hours you put in, Mm -hmm. compared to a normal nine to fiver mm -hmm. is the trade-off that you're doing it because you love it mm -hmm. and you're getting what some sort of similar wage or are we talking yeah you suddenly just got offered millions of dollars just to record no i mean i have to put in a lot of work to make ends meet but it's you know you lose your social life it's down the toilet straight away like i don't know you, you're not going to make a living just doing studio you're not going to make a living just doing live you need to branch out into multiple areas that's the thing about it so and just before we got here you said you were doing some editing so it seems mm -hmm. like you do a few things for love still mm -hmm. even when it is your profession yeah yeah well you know i'm working on a project that one of my housemates is in and a couple of my best mates in the local scene chris Gabauer, jared bridgman good old chums from sensory new side project for those guys so um yeah i throw a few extra hours in there for love um i'm going to charge them a full you know studio rate sit there and edit a few bass tracks i mean i've pretty much done all the mixing for it just the other day so it's just a few last minute touch-ups and such but you know just having to do live as well you know other than obviously the gigs i really want to do like mixing you guys when you've got big shows you know sensory do advent sorrow a bunch of bands like that as well it's you know residencies in places on a weekend so like mixing at the claremont for instance for me at the moment on friday and saturdays really and, just for yeah. the local cover band that's there or something like that uh, cover band on a friday night and then saturday night it's a indie rock night so uh prior to that i was mixing at pika bar on weekends that was real cool good vibe down there a lot of good bands coming through cool place but unfortunately like a lot of venues before them canned live music sad times in the um in in that live scene that you're working in at the moment mm -hmm. um do you have any tips i guess for 
bands live in regards to treating the sound guy in a good way? Like, do you do you get bands that treat a sound guy like a jerk or do you have particular bands that you go, wow, they were really nice. Um, I'm going to do a better <laughs> job for them or, you know. It's pretty rare for people to treat you like shit because they, I guess, I mean, personally, I don't care if someone treats me like shit. I'm not going to do a terrible job for them because I have pride in my work and I want to try and, you know, pull a good mix regardless but sure. you certainly feel like doing terrible things to them when <laughs> when they're jerks to you so my tips would be get the sound guy's name and remember it because that makes them feel good turn your amps down when you're asked because basically if the amps are above a certain volume they're going to be louder than the front of house system itself and then i for instance have no control over how much guitar is in the front of house and in effect i'm fighting your guitars to, to pull a good mix which means turning everything up which isn't always a good thing. But yeah, I mean, if you want to hear your guitar better, we can put it through foldback for you. If you want to hear anything better, we can put it through foldback for you. If you're a jerk about things, a lot of sound guys won't put things through foldback for you, uh, depending on what mood they're in at certain venues. Uh, listen, listen to them because they're not telling you things just for shits and giggles. And, you know, the other thing is I think sometimes bands think that, that they have to fight you for stuff. It's like, they're asking for like more vocals in the foldback, for instance. I'm like, I'll give you as much fucking vocal in the foldback as you want until it starts squealing. You know, I can only tune out certain amount of frequencies until you can't hear anything because it sounds like shit. And the more I have to pull out of something, the less volume you're going to get out of the foldbacks for a start. And, uh, you know, if I have to pull it down because it's squealing, it's not because I hate you or something. It's because I want you to have a good show. So I don't want front of house squealing. I don't want your foldback squealing. I want everything to be nice and pleasant. So if I say I can't give you any more foldback, like, ooh, I'm just going to fuck with this guy because he wants more foldback and I'm going to be a prick and not give it to him. It's because I can't give you more foldback. So just listen to the dudes. And things like, I guess, um, cupping the mic. Like, we don't oh, have that problem because we've really got no shit. handheld. Yeah, well, that's the thing, right? Doesn't like, that turn a cardioid into an omni It does anyway? turn a cardioid into an omni and uh, a shit omni. So, you know, it's... So you're getting more feedback. More feedback. Less bass response. Less bass response because you're killing the proximity effect of a cardioid. People can't see me doing that, so it doesn't make any sense. Um, yeah, tuned ports around these things. So basically sound goes in, requires a certain amount of delay from the back. If you're cupping it, that delay's gone, turns into an omni, no proximity effect, sounds like poo. And picks up everything else on stage. Everything. And it's not brutal at all. It's real shit. And swing mics around if you want. Try not to hit them on things. Obviously, it's common courtesy, but mostly just don't point them at the foldbacks. That'd be sweet. Oh, and tune your fucking drum kits. How about that? Get a drum dial if you have to. Skin your kit now and then, you know. If you've got really dead dead skins, just maybe replace them before a big gig. You're not yeah. bad. I'm not I'm not directing this at you. I'm just saying in general. Yeah, sometimes you, you know, I'll sit there wrestling with an EQ for ages and it's like, well, I can't do anything more with that because it's just shit. Basically, if all your stuff's tuned well, if all your stuff's at a good volume and you play well and you play tight, then the band almost mixes itself. What do you think about things like the Kemper or Axe Effects, like DI guitar rigs? Great for touring, but not in the studio. Don't like them. And in terms of the studio, let's mm -hmm. pretend you've got your old mate with a $190 mm -hmm. guitar head with some smelly top end on it. You love that tone and you go into a studio like yourself mm -hmm. and you're presented with that. How do you go with that like do you think people should be a little bit accommodating to you know what you have to offer mm -hmm. tone wise or yeah look yes and no i mean it depends on your equipment so my vibe when it comes to recording a band is that i'm trying to capture the sound of the band so if that is the sound of the band don't think so with that kind of amp but 
what we're talking, maybe an HM2 in front of it or something. Filthy, disgusting, but sounds awesome. Yeah, I'll try anything. You know, I mean, fuck that sensory album. Me and Sean went through probably about $60,000 worth of guitar amps and cabs and mics and stuff just trying to get, you know, the exact tone. And in the end, we ended up using a uh, free software amp sim for the guitar tone. Really? So... Which one was that for people out there, if uh, you want to say it? Lapu Le, Legion. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Um, so whatever gets the job done. If that works, then sure, I'll use it. But otherwise, if it's obviously not working... You know, if you throw a bunch of sweet mics at it, sweet pre's and it's in a sweet room and it sounds like a bag of shit and just doesn't go with anything else, then time to use something else. And if you don't want to use something else, maybe time to go somewhere else because <laughs> I'm not going to record it if it sounds like absolute shit. Don't want my name on it, you know? Okay, so you have a, a little bit of a policy about that. Do you review things like demos and pre-production of bands before you sort of sign them on to do a session? Yeah, I'll always try and go and watch a band check them out, see if I actually dig their tunes. You know, obviously you reach a point where you need to pay your bills and you'll record whatever, you know, so you have to record some stuff that maybe you don't want to record, but it's few and far between. I try and go out and see a lot of bands and I network with a lot of bands. That's another very important thing about this whole industry is networking and getting your name out there. So I tend to go and, yeah, see as many bands as I can and, you know, discuss what I do with them when I like a band so that when they do come around to thinking about recording at some point, they've kind of got my name in the back of their head and maybe they'll come to me about recording. So, you know, doesn't happen very often, but it does happen sometimes. Nice one, man. Um, Sam, it's uh, Cabba here from Claim the Throne. I was just wondering, um, do you use, uh, are you a fan of reference albums in the studio and do you have a few favourites production-wise and to use as reference albums? No. Whoa. I don't use reference albums. Is that a uh, why? Well, you don't they, want to copy stuff like that. Yeah, I, I yeah, exactly. I mean, they've got and, you know, there's. I do, I do use reference albums at the end of, say, my first revision of a mix, just to check whether things are sort of you know similar commercial. Like, I'll find a band that the band I'm recording is a fan of and have a listen to some of their albums. Or maybe I'll listen to one of their albums before we go into the studio if they've said specifically they want that kind of sound just so I've got the gist of it. But I think if you're trying to make another band sound like another band, then you're not doing that band justice. You should be listening to that band and working out how to get the best result for that band's sound possible. And I think using reference albums distorts that perspective, so I don't use them. Awesome. What if a band give you an album and say, this is what we want our guitar tone to sound like? Well, I can pick out probably what the amp is that has been used depending on what it is and make suggestions and such, you know, I'm quite happy to aim for a similar sort of sound, but I'm not going to try and copy it exactly. So I'm not going to sit there and, you know, spend hours miking up a guitar amp and cross-referencing it with an album and going back and forth. It's like, if you wanted an album that sounds like that, then go to that producer, go to that recorder, recorder, producer, engineer, whatever, get them to record it. Cause a lot of it is to do with them as well as the band. Do you have any favorite albums, I guess, um, sound wise that, I don't know, you aspire to, to hit one day or, you know, any albums where, that you listen to and go, that sounds good? Uh, well, you know what? I love Colin Richardson stuff, so Burn My Eyes by Machine Head. Yeah. Phonography by Cradle of Filth. <laughs> Not so much that one. Um, yeah, I love, I mean, my main amp of choice is always the 5150, so for me, one of the best examples of that is going to be Machine Head for sure. Um that's probably my favourite album of all time, to be perfectly honest. So we right up there for me as well. Mm. And how do you go about getting drum sounds and stuff like that? Like, obviously, you record a wide variety of genres, and it's we're not mm -hmm. like Cavern and I pretty much 
only listen to Devourment and <laughs> want that sound. But um, like when you've got a band coming in, like for instance, if Claim of Throne came into you, we'd be mm. looking for a, well, Ash would be looking for something across between Tool album and a Macedon drum sound or something mm-hmm. like that. Like how do you approach that in your space that you've got with the drum kit you're presented by a client as opposed to having access to a ridiculously awesome drum kit? Well, it's not too much of an issue for me because we have a bunch of ridiculously awesome drum kits there. So are you saying in a world where I didn't have that access? Is that what we're saying? You have kits as well as just yeah, shitloads of snare drums? Something like 12 full full kits, bunch of stuff. Pretty good time for a plug for Electric City yeah, right now. Yeah, you know, we've got a bunch of Ludwigs and Pearls and I think there's a whole Brady kit there. There's a... AOD custom in there. Um, there's no a bunch way. of really tasty stuff. So when bands come in to record, you can uh-huh. accommodate them. Yeah. If they come in with a Pearl Forum, for instance, mm-hmm. you can dish them out on a Ludwig and they'll be yeah. sweet. Well, you know, if it's a Pearl Export or something, yeah, sure. You've got Ludwig's, got a huge snare collection, lots of Brady's, lots okay. of AOTs. So that's not a problem. tasty stuff, so not an issue. But let's say I didn't have access to that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Tuning the drum kit is of vital importance. So if you have a pretty average kit, you put decent enough skins on it and tune it well, it comes up a lot better than you might think it would. Do you tune? I do a bit, but uh, got a good mate, Hat. I don't know if you know Hat. Just played <laughs> drums for uh, Downside, Draft, etc. Monster drummer. So um, a lot of the snares down in our studio are his. Basically didn't have anywhere to store them. Good friend of ours stores them down at the studio, lets us rape them at will. Uh, so I'll often call him up. Charges about a hundred bucks to come in and tech for the day, and he'll fully reskin the kit, tune it up, and it just sounds fucking amazing. So, okay, so um, for aspiring engineers out there, you'd uh-huh. suggest learn to tune, learn to tune, mm. and for drummers, learn to tune. Yeah, mm. and learn what heads are good. Yeah, because you had some specific, you know, oh, if definitely. you're getting new heads, specific, please get these kind of Evans. requirements. Evans. Evans, what G2s? G2s on the toms, Genera mm. on the snare. We're talking metal here, of course. Of They're course. my preferences. So yep. nice tight sounds with minimal overtones. Mm, do you good. get, um, speaking of metal, do you get a variety of clients these days? Or because you've come from a metal upbringing, so to speak, mm-hmm. um, what clientele do you look at these days? I mostly record metal and hardcore stuff. Bit of punk here and there, but I do record anything. Uh, but mostly... I do heavy stuff because that's the sort of clientele that approaches me. Are you out there still networking as actively as you used to be to try and get clients or how does Uh, that work for you these days? Not as actively, but kind of with different bands. So obviously because I do live sound and when I've been doing residencies in various venues and such, you you get a lot of bands coming up and complimenting you on the sound and uh, talk to them about what you do and the fact that you have a studio and a lot of them are looking to record. So... Do a lot of networking that way. So that still seems to be quite a primary thing. Oh, it's very important. You need to be active and gig going. Mm. You know, you should be a part of your local music scene. Agreed. You can't just expect people to rock up to your studio because you've got a studio, you know. Go out and watch bands. Make people want to come record with you, you know. Would you say that's the most effective form of marketing that you have for yourself? Getting out there and actually speaking to people face-to-face? Yeah. I don't do a lot of, I don't do any advertising really, you know spam the odd post from the Facebook page, but that's about it. I pretty much just put my feet on the ground and go out and talk to people. That's how I've always done it. Get some good word word of mouth, I guess, and yeah. people pass your name around and it's a way yeah. to do it. Yeah, exactly. And then on to the plug, Electric City Studios, how do people get in contact with you for that? Uh, I guess that would be facebook.com slash electric C-S, so E-L-E-C-T-R-I-C-C-S, 
Electric City Studios. Otherwise, electriccitystudios at gmail.com, either way. And we'll have all that in the show notes as well. So log on to claimthethrone.net. You can uh, catch Sam that way and get in touch with him. Um, Sam, I don't know if there's any way you'd say that um, you would sort of set yourself apart from other options in Perth for um, for people looking to record or for live sound at the moment? Uh, well, I've definitely got an awesome beard, so that's pretty cool. You get the job. My vibe when it comes to recording bands is that I'm trying to capture the sound of the band as it is in the most natural and raw form possible. So I try to use as minimal amounts of triggering, sample replacement, reamping, all that kind of stuff where possible based on the skill level of the player. Uh, I really just aim to try and capture a very accurate representation of the band and try and get the best sound that I possibly can. So that's my vibe. If you want that kind of thing, hit me up. For those who are interested in a bit of DIY, are you happy to do things like mixing services, reamping services, Mm -hmm. stuff like that? Heaven forbid, drum editing, things Mm -hmm. like... You know, basically just tighten up a home Yeah, of course. Band. Like, look, a lot of the stuff that I have been doing lately uh, has been drum tracking and just editing and mixing drums and bands recording DI guitars at home and vocals and bass and such at home. And I'll reamp and, you know, mix the rest of the record because drums are the hardest part. Need a good room if you want a natural drum sound. Which you have. Yeah. So, yeah, definitely. Always keen for that. Getting on to more fun stuff to talk about. What's mm. your favorite piece of gear at the moment? Let's oh. say I'll give you a few things. What's your favorite microphone? SM7. Always. Really? Okay, Love cool. It. Favorite. Still. That's and fantastic. you use that on? Everything. Especially on vocals. Screamy vocals. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, snare bottom. Absolute favorite mic bottom, for that. Bottom, really? Bottom. Okay, Love it. Cool. Fucking love it. Why on bottom? Because I'm weird and I get most of my snare tone from the bottom of the snare. Is that right? I try and get all of the crack and all of the juice from the snare out of my overheads and my rooms. That is a tip. Mm. That is a serious tip. And I pretty much use all my close mics just for the attack, so the initial note and attack, not okay. so much the actual tone of the drums. So I don't position the mic so that it's it's right on the wires. I'm trying to get a lot of bass and punch and thump out of it. So I want something big with a lot of resonance that gives me a big fat fucking low end so I can just make a really big, cracky, brutal, ball nut crunching, fucking delicious snare. Mm. Then room mic. Room mic. Mm. You know what? I'm just going to go with an override of what I just said with the SM7. Oh, two SM7. So one on the bottom no, snare no, no. and one on the room? No, no, no. Or it's, use uh, that as the room. Another mic that's my favorite mic. This is probably my equally favorite mic. Oh. <laughs> um, it's a Line Audio CM3. It's about as big as an XLR plug. costs about 170 bucks, and it's the flattest, most awesome sounding microphone really? I've ever used. So that's overheads, so toms, cymbals, guitar cabs, rooms, whatever. Fucking great. Favorite is a 5150? Yep. How about a bass amp? Bass amp. Don't use them. DI. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so when you're talking DI, are you DI and then sans amp? Yep. Typically, I'll take the bass track, duplicate it, and then split the two channels. So I'll high pass one, low pass the other. So one contains only low frequencies, and I'll process that for a nice, clean, punchy sort of low-end bass sound. And then I'll split the other one off so it's only mid to high frequencies, and I'll distort that with something like a yeah, sans amp PSA1, dark glass, Maybe I'll reamp it through a 5150, but never use bass amps, never mic them up. But if I'm playing live, SVT Classic through an 8x10 fridge with a PSA1. Tasty. Then bass guitar. I uh, love Warwick's. Electric guitar for 
metal music. ESPs, love them. Okay, with active or passive pickups? You know, I used to love EMGs and then I became a big passives man and then I went back to EMGs and now whatever gets the job done right. So uh, both good for different things. Screaming vocals, SM7. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about, do you have any preference for backgrounds or anything like that? What, like so clean singing vocals? Yeah, anything like that. In a studio context, I would be saying, you know, some nice sort of condenser probably, depending on the vocals. I mean, I use SM7s on clean vocals. Thriller was recorded with an SM7. You don't have to tell me that. <laughs> what a mic. What a mic. Neumann's probably, U87, something like that. Nice tube condenser mic, M149 or something, you know, something tasty. Yeah. Cool. And as far as, as drum kits go? Drum kits. Like, what's my favorite drum kit? Yeah. Thomas Stark Classic Boobinga with a Ludwig Black Beauty Snare. Boom. Sorted. Burzum asked you to record an album. Could you do it? Yes. Part two. Do you like Burzum's recordings? Production or music? <sighs> Two-part question again. Two-part question. Yes, music. Production. I think one of the things that pisses me off the most about black metal is that it's made to sound like shit purposefully because that's grim or cult or true or whatever. And like, fuck that. Some of it's great music. Why don't record it well, you know? Listen to like, like listen to new black and death shit like Belfagor and I don't know, hate that kind of stuff, you know? Well, huge sounds. I want to hear some sweet black metal recorded like that. Even, you know, Dark Funeral or later Immortal mm. stuff, you know, that, that doesn't have that grim toilet recording and it mm. sounds amazing, so. Exactly. Yeah. But, yeah, same, same way. I guess you can appreciate how some people want to sound. Like turds. Favourite studio treats or beverages? Uh, Cooper's Pale Ale. Are you a coffee man? No. Interesting. Food. Food. Mm. Ramen. Really? Mm. Not noodles, like, man. Not not like ramen as in, you know, like packet, like ramen from now Real on ramen. Murray Street. Ramen like... Oh. Like 20 a litre bucket ramen. Like mm, ramen. Sam, thanks so much for being with us, man. You're Being uh, educational as well as entertaining, which is what we're all about here. And I've no doubt that all the listeners have learned a lot from listening to you. So much appreciated. And all you guys out there, um, if you need any work at all, you'd be crazy not to go to old mate Sam here. So head to claimthethrone.net, check out the show notes. You'll be able to get in touch with him easy peasy. And um, yeah, you know, if you don't need work, flick him a message and say thanks for chatting. What a good cunt. Cheers. There we have it. First interview of the year with Sam Allen. Big thanks to Sam for um, chatting to us and um, yeah, sharing those valuable insights um, to us and to all the listeners out there. So I hope you guys enjoyed it. If you do have any questions at all, you know where to find us. Um, you know you can find us on claimthethrone.com, claimthethrone.net, info at claimthethrone.com uh, or facebook.com slash claimthethorn. Um, and if you do want to get involved with Sam's uh, business at Electric City Studios, you can hit them up at electriccitystudios at gmail.com. Do you enjoy the interview there, Ash? I did quite a lot. I enjoyed the whiskey I had beforehand and the beers <laughs> we were drinking. What were they? Sapporo or something? Yeah, I think so. They were quite yummy. Yeah, real tasty hot day. So it was nice. Since we're still away on tour, we've still got some upcoming shows that you guys should check out. And they are this Thursday in Ballarat at the Corova Lounge. Fuck your Ballarat card with the Hazard Circular, Hacksaw and Order of Torment. Uh, the night after on Friday the 31st in Hobart at the Brisbane Hotel with Atra Vitosis and Gape. Saturday, February 1st in Adelaide at the Enigma Bar with Truth Corroded, Arcadia Decidia and Headbore about uh, 13 bucks, I think. And the last show of the tour, back with Bellacore again in our home city of Perth. 
Earth at the Amplifier Bar with Earthrot and Sam Allen's band Natron. Um, so definitely get along to that one too. Looking forward to seeing you, uh, you guys on the road. It's been really fun so far on this tour, I'm assuming. So we're still away until next Monday. So we've actually got another interview coming up for you, two in a row. Lucky you suckers to get those sexy interviews down your chest. Yeah, I guess this week was studio based. Next week is band marketing based in the sense that we're chatting with Acclaim the Throne super fan. And we're going to teach you guys, well, not teach you guys, but just show the importance of, um, of understanding your fans and how to get more people like that to your shows and supporting your band. If you think you've got something to contribute to Claim the Throne Blodgecast in the way of an interview, um, please let us know and yeah, we'll see what we can do about that. Also, if you'd like your, uh, your business advertised on our show, hit us up too. We can even make little crazy jingles. And yeah, happy to plug any gigs or news for your band as well. Just hit us up. Yeah. 